All right, good morning, New Life East. You can take a seat. Um, a couple of things to just get out of the way up front here. It is Family Sunday. That means you are in here with your kiddos, and we are excited that they are in here with us. Parents, I say this every time we have a Family Sunday around here, and I'm going to say it until I die or don't work here anymore. Um, your kids are not going to bother me in the slightest, okay? I know you don't believe that, but it's true. Now, if they show up on stage, that's a bit of a different thing. I don't know what, I, didn't, I don't need like a stage prop of a child today. But your kids, we know, are going to make noise. They're going to get up and run around. They're, you're going to have them doing down and backs in the back of the gym to get energy out. Some of you are going to be walking around all over the building. There's going to be kids in the middle of the aisle. It's all good. Got it? You, you, listen, look, this is what we do. You guys trust that. I'm not going to be bothered by it. So you guys can take a big, deep breath. It's, gonna, it's all going to be good, okay? Sounds good? Some of you who are parent, younger parents, you don't, you're not sure if you can believe that yet. It's going to be okay. I promise. Uh, if you're a guest with us today, we're also super glad that you've joined us. It's a bit of an odd Sunday for you to be a first-time guest at a church. Um, we normally have, like, full-fledged kids' ministry. Today, we just don't. We've invited the kiddos to be a part of what we're doing here in worshiping. And that's a value for us here at New Life Church is that we take part in whole life discipleship. So our kids get to see us worship. They get to see us engage in the sermon. They get to see us take communion together. So that's what we're doing today. So we are going to continue, though, in a series. We're not going to, like, stop just because kids are in here. We're going to continue in a series that we've been walking through in the book of Psalms, specifically a small chunk of Psalms, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, um, called the Psalms of Ascent. And uh, we're actually going to be in Psalm 126 today. So if you've been following along chronologically with us, you're going to notice that I'm skipping a couple. That's not because those Psalms are like bad or like I didn't want to touch them or anything. We just, we only have so many weeks to get through all of these. So Psalm 126 is where we're going to be. And one of the things that we've said about these Psalms as we've walked through them is that they give us a picture both historically of the pilgrimages and the journeys that the people of God would take as they were scattered around the world, and they would make their way back to Jerusalem. So they see Jerusalem as this key place in their faith journey. They see the temple as the location where God is at least like the closest to them in the Old Testament. But it also serves as a metaphor for the journey of faith for us, right? We can read it, and we can see the way that God allows us to journey through faith. One of the interesting things about our lives and the journey of faith, especially those of you who are wiser and more mature than us in this room, as you know, that on our journey of faith and in our journey of life, there inevitably comes pain. There inevitably comes loss and difficulty and tension. It just shows up. It has a way of doing it. Maybe because we've messed up. Maybe because life has just happened to us. And what Psalm 126 gives us is a vision of joy, but it gives us a vision of joy in the midst of all of that pain and loss. So, Psalm 126, the psalmist writes, when the, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord. Like streams in the Negev, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping 
Carrying seed to sow will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Let's pray. God, what, uh, what a fun morning it is to sit with our kids and to worship and to sing and to chase them around and to feel anxious and nervous about what they're going to do. God, we, we see blessing and a grace and a gift in all of it. Um, so God, we, we ask this morning, would you help us have an enjoyable morning? Would you help us have fun with our families? Would you also give us the eyes to see this text in a new way? Would you give us the ears to hear what your spirit is speaking to us? And would you grant us the capacity to be honest about where we find ourselves in the journey of faith? Lord, I know that there are people in this room who feel like their lives have completely bottomed out. And today is for them. I believe you have a word for them. And so what we do as a church is we come together, we worship, we sing to you, God. And we ask that you would speak to us wherever we find ourselves in the journey that is faith. We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. There's a word that's used early on in this psalm. It's the word restore. It's the word restore, which... In Hebrew is the word Shabbat. Let me hear you say Shabbat. And it is this idea that there are moments in our lives where everything completely falls apart. Those relationships that we had crumble. Those friends that we had are all of a sudden not our friends anymore. The career that we were in the middle of has crumbled to pieces. Our finances have broken down. And what that Hebrew word Shabbat gives us is a picture of what God does, and it's that he comes into the lives of his people, and he has both the ability and the desire to take those things and make a complete reversal out of them, to completely change them from being these things of destruction and terror to there being something good that comes out of it. And I know there's the awkward reality for those of you who are sitting in a season like that right now, that the idea that something good could come out of it feels completely foreign and completely impossible. But the people of God in the scriptures are familiar with this idea that God is able to step in and intervene and do something that they couldn't even imagine. We know from the earliest days of the scripture, we find God's people enslaved in Egypt and God hears their cries and he steps in to their lives. And Moses, a man who God identifies, leads them to liberation and to freedom. We also know that there are multiple times in the lives of God's people where they find themselves being ransacked and destroyed by some foreign military superpower, and not just like destroyed, but then kidnapped and dragged off into exile, into foreign lands, and they find themselves completely disoriented, completely confused. And what almost always happens in those moments is after a certain amount of time, prophets, priests, voices in the wilderness begin to show up and say that God is actually fully intending on restoring you to something. That God is fully planning on stepping into the situation of his people and turning their lives into something new. Let me ask you, have any of you found yourselves ever in a moment where your life has completely fallen apart? Maybe for some of you, you're in it right now. Those relationships crumbled. Those finances crumbled. Your sense of identity, purpose, calling, whatever it was, has completely gone away. Some of you are in it now. Some of you can remember a moment when it happened in your lives, and you can even recall the way in which God did, in fact, show up and restore it. 
What I want to propose to you about Psalm 126 is that what it gives us is a psalm of joy, but it gives us a picture of what it looks like when God chooses to step into our lives and begin to restore things. The first thing that I think it recognizes up top when God begins to restore our lives is this, is that God restores our lives by reminding us how to dream again. This is not a Hallmark movie or a Hallmark card. Bear with me here. The psalmist, he writes in the very first verse, he says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who what? Who dreamed. That word dreamed in Hebrew can also mean those who become healthy. In other words, it's, it's healthy to be people who have the capacity to dream, to look beyond the spot that we find ourselves and to see a better and brighter future somewhere ahead. To dream is to be people who have hope. To dream is to be people who can look at the situations we find ourselves in and say, but there's something more on the horizon. Now, just by a show of hands here, uh, I'm curious, how many of you would say, like, when you go to bed at night, you just never dream? It just never happens. You just go to bed, you just conk out. Yeah, a few of us in here, you just go to bed, you just conk out, you, it's dark, you wake back up, it's bright again, and everything is, like, back to normal. You just start the day over. Studies have been done. They say there's like chunks of people in the world that just never dream. They just go to bed. They never dream. Now, at the very least, they at least don't remember their dream, which we don't need to have a conversation about your memory capabilities in church today. But they say there are whole groups of people who just, they're unable to dream. At the very least, they can't remember them at all. Herodotus, who is an ancient historian, ancient Greek historian, he wrote a large piece of work called the histories. And he concluded that at one point he came across a group of people. He says this, he said, the natives call this mountain the pillar of heaven and they themselves take their name from it being called Atlantis or the Atlanteans. He's referring to, of course, the folklore of the lost city of Atlantis. Some of you remember hearing this growing up. He says this, he said, they were reported to not eat any living thing. So they didn't eat any meat and they were sad for it and never to have any dreams. This group of people, they didn't eat meat and they didn't dream. They didn't have bacon and they didn't have hope. It's a hard life. He also says this about them though, which is just fascinating to me. He says the Atlanteans had reputedly achieved great levels of spiritual, scientific, artistic, and technical success. And they stopped dreaming. Think about it. It's a society that has had so much advancement, so much technological moving forward. They have made a name for themselves and they are secure just as they are. They don't need to think about a better future. They've discovered it. I would propose to you that this sounds a little bit like the modern world we live in. We've made every achievement we ever could. We've come as far as we can possibly imagine. We don't need to dream about a better future. We can create a better future right here right now. And yet what the psalmist gives us is that God is in fact the one who can give us this vision of a better future. My fear is that many of us, like the Atlanteans, when our lives begin to fall apart, the reason we have such a hard time dreaming is we feel the pressure is all on us to put our lives back together. We don't need to see a better future. We can just muster up the strength to do it, right? We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can make everything work out. You know what's fascinating though? When we talk about putting our lives back together, 
we basically go, I wonder if I can just put everything back exactly as it was. Can we just put it back together as it was and then no one around me, none of my friends, none of my family will judge me. They won't know that anything was ever wrong in the first place. I remember when I was, uh, I was 16 years old and uh, uh, my mom, the way she decorated, I don't know if my mom's watching this, so this is going to be really weird the next time I'm around her, but we're going to do some stuff. My mom, uh, she decorated our house in a very nice way, but it wasn't really functional for a 16-year-old boy. So she would collect like china plates and all these like tchotchkes and stuff. And there would be like china plates hanging up on the wall. If you have china plates hanging on your wall, I'm not trying to offend you, but here we are. (laughs) And when I was 16, me and a group of my friends were like hanging out at my house and we're being 16-year-old boys. So we're like pushing each other and just like throwing each other around the house because this is what boys do. And my friend Peter, we're in our dining room. Again, I don't know if my mom even knows this happened. She's going to find out now. He backed up into a set of these china plates, and one of them fell and just crashed into pieces. And Peter, purest soul in the world, begins to have a full-on panic attack, full anxiety. I've just destroyed something in your home. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Peter, he gets in his car, he drives to the nearest hardware store, buys every kind of glue he could find, drives back to my house. My mother is gone. He takes all the pieces of the plate, and for the next two hours or so, is just trying to piece it all back together exactly as he found it when he knocked it off of the wall. And every few minutes, he would look at me and be like, is this what it looked like? I'm like, dude, there's so many plates around this place. I don't know what that plate looked like. It's like, do you think the horse was like this or was it upside down? I was like, I don't know, man. He spent the next two hours, though, piecing it together. When he finally got it together, he glued it all back, and we put it back up on the thing. And I don't know if my mom has ever noticed. (laughs) The truth is, though, when our lives fall apart and we think about having them come back together, the best any of us can imagine is things just going back to the way they were. Which, if we're honest things probably fell apart because they weren't that great in the first place. That marriage that you were in, it wasn't like it just fell apart randomly. Your job that fell apart, you probably could have spotted it coming from miles away. See, the best that we can ever do is put things back exactly as we found them. But what God promises to do almost every time is to put things back together in a way far beyond what we could have ever imagined to do something more beautiful than we could have pictured it, to do something more fruitful for our lives than we ever could have imagined. God invites us to dream again because when we dream, we can see his vision for what our lives could be. Not just a bad imitation of what it once was, but something brand new. What's interesting about when restoration begins to happen in this psalm and in the lives of God's people in the scriptures is that it almost always starts in these like prayer closet moments with prophets, in these private moments with priests, what I notice in the psalm is that restoration may occur in private, but it rarely remains private. Restoration may begin in these private spaces of prayer and conversation with God where he begins to reveal things to you. We see this all throughout the scriptures. When Daniel is in exile in Babylon, he receives a dream about what God is going to do. Joseph in the Old Testament receives a vision about what God, a dream about what God is going to do with him and his family and his people. It's far beyond anything that he could imagine. 
all of the prophets, the prophecies that they eventually declare out in public, they start in these private moments where God reveals something special, something significant about what he is going to do. Look at what the psalmist writes again, starting in verse two. He says this, our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among who? The nations. Anytime in the Bible the words the nations are used, it's not talking about like God's people. Good, holistic, righteous people weren't recognizing this. Their enemies were recognizing what was happening. That somehow joy has come into their lives. God has begun to restore them and even their enemies are noticing what is happening. The Lord has in fact done great things for them. Jumping to verse 3. The Lord has done great things for us, and we were filled with what? Joy. Catch this. What may have started in private has become so public in the restoration of God's people, of God putting their life back together, that their enemies, their friends, their relatives, everyone is beginning to see what is happening. And I think the psalmist gives us a hint as to why everyone is sort of like, hey, something's going on over there with those people. You know, they were kidnapped and dragged off to a foreign land, and yet God is restoring them. There's one thing that the psalmist points out is evident in the lives of these people, and is that in the midst of all of that chaos, in the midst of all of that brokenness, joy has found its way into their lives. Joy has found its way into their lives in the midst of all the chaos of what's going on. Colin, can you throw me that spray bottle that's down there? Or Gabby. (laughs) She's like, I got one good arm left. Let me do something. In the midst of all of the chaos, they begin to find joy. Now, a thought is going through some of your heads, especially those of you who are in the middle of seasons or have just recently been in seasons where things have fallen apart. To talk about joy feels quite cliche, does it not? To say, hey, in the midst of everything that's going on with you, what you ought to embrace is some joy. And when people say that to you, you want to make hand signals at them that we can't make in church. Now, what you would actually prefer to do is to follow the advice of someone like Solomon in the scriptures, in the book of Ecclesiastes. It begins this way. Some of you know exactly what this is. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Some of you are like, I can get on board with that meaningless. Life is falling apart. Meaningless. My relationships are breaking down. What's the point? My career has been disrupted. What's the point? Our finances are in the toilet. What's the point? It's a waste of time. Can I teach you something this morning? Is that okay? Am I allowed to do that? Some of you are like, no, I'd rather just keep doing this. The word meaningless in Hebrew is the word havel. Let me hear you say havel. And Havel, while we have translated it in the English language to be meaningless, that's probably not the best way to translate it. That word Havel actually in Hebrew better translates as the word vapor or mist. So what is Solomon actually getting at here? All of your life from birth to death in the grand scheme of history is like a mist. Life, right there. Life, 
right there. This thing is like fancy. I got this last night at Target. I'm like impressed with how the mist is coming out of this. Someone says every moment of your life is like a mist. So parents, when your kids are in your car and you're on a long road trip and they look at you and say, this is taking forever, just look at them and say, don't be dramatic. It's a mist. Solomon gives us a picture that your very life is nothing more than a vapor or a short breath, which means what you do with it is entirely up to you. What choice you make to do with it when that mist feels like it is complete chaos is your choice. And what this psalm and countless other psalms invite you to make with that choice is to choose joy. When your relationships are falling apart, joy. When your job has collapsed, joy. You only have a short amount of time in life and you get to choose what you do with it. So New Life East, let me ask you, especially those of you that are in seasons like this, with what little bit you have, will you be cynical? Will you be pessimistic? With what little bit of life you have, will you get angry at God for what has happened to you? With what little bit of life that you have, will you look at the universe as the blame for it? Or will you somehow find a way to choose joy? This is the great invitation of the Psalms over and over again. That even as your life has been dismantled and broken down and falling apart, is that you can still choose joy. You don't have to be stuck in the spot. The invitation is not to deny all of your emotions. The invitation is not to be like, I'm going to put on a happy face and pretend nothing has happened. That is not the invitation. The invitation is not to deny what you feel. The invitation, though, is that even in the midst of all of that brokenness, you can still choose joy. It's like SeaWorld up here because it just keeps blowing back at me every time I spray it. The Psalms give us a picture of what God can do as he begins to restore our lives. And that if you choose joy, what actually begins to happen is that the world around you begins to recognize something about your God. That somehow in the midst of everything falling apart, you can still choose joy and that God is worth worshiping. The greatest presentation of the gospel in the world in which we live might not be you telling someone that Jesus has died for them, but it might be you choosing joy in the midst of the chaos of your life. Here's what I can promise you about when God restores your life, though, is that the way that God restores our life, you know those well-meaning people when something bad has happened to you? And they say something along the lines of like, man, I'm really sorry that's going on. But you know, one day in heaven, God will make it up to you. I know you've lost your job, but one day in heaven, you're going to get a mansion with a bunch of money. I know you've lost your spouse. And one day in heaven, you get to see him again. 
I know, I know that that marriage is broken apart. And one day you'll get to heaven and it'll be okay. Can I tell you about the way God restores our lives? It's the last thing I'm going to say to you today. Is that God doesn't re- restore our lives for someday. He restores it for today. Think about what the psalmist says in the back chunk of this. He says, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those are streams that they could have seen. Those are streams that were dry almost year-round. The only time that they would be full of water is if a massive torrential downpour occurred, something that was rare. Lord, restore our fortunes. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those of you who have found yourself late at night in tears and shambles about what has happened to you, the Lord doesn't look at you and say, hey, one day in heaven, I got some tissue for you. It's going to be okay. He looks at you and says, even today, you'll sing songs of joy. He even says, those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, The implication is there's no place to sow those seeds. You're just walking around with them. We'll return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. The images that the psalmist gives you is that the restoration that God wants to bring into your life is not just far off in a distant future somewhere when you die. It's right now. But here's the caveat. We said that God restores far beyond our wildest imaginations. Which means, those of you whose career has fallen apart, he's probably not giving you back that same job. Those of you who have found yourselves in divorced homes with divorced parents, your parents are probably not getting back together that way. Those of you who have found yourself in a marriage that has collapsed, His commitment to you is not that he is going to put you back together with that spouse. What God promises, though, is that those voids, those gaps, those places of pain and loss that have emerged will be filled, and they're almost always filled in ways that you can't ever imagine. I think about this in my own life. I grew up in a, some of you know this, I grew up in a single-parent home. My parents were divorced before I was like one and a half. So I grew up just me and my mom. No dad around, no semblance of that being present. My mom never remarried. It's just me and my mom. And that didn't really bother me until you would find yourself in grade school or in middle school and they're doing things like donuts for dad where the dads get to come in and eat donuts with their kids in the morning. You know how many times I went to donuts for dad? Zero times. And you know what God did in my life? is he didn't give me like a new dad. There wasn't like a dad just showed up and it was like, oh, we have a dad. You know what God gave me? He gave me the church. As a 16 year old who was like lost and angry and mad at the world, what God gave me was a family bigger than I could imagine. Gave me men, women, brothers, sisters, people who would speak into my lives, who would convict me, who would challenge me, who would love me. God rarely puts our world back together in the way that we think he ought to. He almost always puts it back together in a way that is far beyond what we could ever imagine. And friends, we don't get a clearer picture of that 
than what happens in the very person of Jesus. That we get a God who doesn't like puppeteer the world back into place. He gets into the dirt of life with us. He comes and suffers on a cross and then he resurrects from the dead. He does all sorts of things that no one saw coming and yet that is the exact way in which he put the world back together again. It was far greater than the people of God of ancient days could have imagined. It's far greater than what many of us can even fathom right now, that God would come because of the deep love and compassion and care that he has for your life and my life so much. Friends, I wanna invite you to stand this morning as we prepare for communion. I remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is a picture of my body which has been broken for you. Every time you eat, would you do this in remembrance of me? Remembering that this is in fact the way that God ultimately puts all of the world back together. That same night he took a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you, for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you drink, would you do this in remembrance of me? It is in fact his shed blood that does the work to put our lives back together again, to restore us to the fortunes of being God's sons and daughters. This is where we see that clear as anything. So I want to invite our communion servers to come forward this morning. We're going to make two aisles down this center aisle. You're going to come down. One of our servers is going to give you a wafer that represents the broken body of Jesus that has been broken for you. It has been broken for you and that broken situation you find yourself in or have found yourself in. You're gonna take that wafer and dip it into the shed blood of Jesus. You're gonna take it back to your seat. You're gonna eat with your friends, eat with your family around you. I wanna invite you, if you see people sitting around you that don't have anyone to take communion with, invite them into the fold with you. Brothers and sisters, this, these are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Come forward to receive communion.